Well, we're in James, the book of James, and we're in chapter 1 still. I want to talk uh, today about the difference between uh, enduring the testing and refusing temptation. And that song was definitely appropriate. Um, Last week, we talked about the right attitude in trials because we're all going to experience trials at one time or another, and we shouldn't be fearful about those trials, but we should be having the right attitude. Possessing the right attitude, it's not really an option. It is a command. Uh, It is a command. That's the wording, consider it all joy. Consider is a verb, and it is in the imperative. So it's not an option. We as believers, and this message is for believers. I'll talk to unbelievers towards the end. But this message is for you that have trusted Christ. And I I don't say this enough. I don't emphasize one or the other because I know in a group like this, we always have some that have not yet trusted Christ, and I want to be sensitive to you as well and help you to understand the Scriptures. A lot of times we explain things at Beacon of Hope because we know we have people coming that maybe don't have a church background. So I am talking to believers today, and this whole chapter is really dealing with believers, but there's some tidbits also for those that haven't believed yet, and we'll get to those. So possess the right attitude uh, when you come up upon trials and testing. Trials are not a possibility. They are a certainty. You will experience trials. Uh, Even as a believer, wonderfully saved, you will experience testing and trials. And the right attitude is based in a personal knowledge of the truth. You have trusted in Jesus, and so you do know the truth because he is the truth. And so you need to have that personal relationship with him, and that will engender the right attitude towards testing. You need to recognize that testing is used by God to approve us in our faith, to show us that our faith is genuine, and to actually grow us spiritually. It's all in the way that we respond to those tests. Um, Then we talked in verses 5 through 8 about how uh, prayer is a part and how it's a part in our trials. We need wisdom when we come up against trials, various trials and encountered, uh, encountered in our life. And when we're tested, sometimes we don't understand why we're being tested. We don't understand where this thing is coming from. And so we need to ask for wisdom, and that is prayer. And then we talked about the way to request wisdom from God. You don't ask for it and then worry. You ask for it and leave it with him, trusting that he will answer the prayer. You're not double-minded. You trust God when you pray to him. And the gift of wisdom is from God. He does give us wisdom. In fact, Jesus Christ, again, he's not only the truth, but he is also our wisdom. So if we continue on and we just look at the verses uh, 9 through 11, but let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is gone. It's destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And you think, how odd for James to write that in this context. And you may be thinking, well, it's telling us that poor people are, are really great. And rich people are really bad. (laughs) That's not what that's saying. It's in the context. You've got to take the wider context of experiencing various trials, testing. And you know what? Tests and trials come to rich people and poor alike. They don't uh, respect just the rich, or they don't respect just the poor. What this is actually saying is the brother of humble circumstances, meaning he doesn't have a lot of money, okay, That poor person, when tested, is to look to his eternal riches in Christ. He's talking to a believer that doesn't have very much wherewithal financially, and it's saying, but let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. He is the child of the king. 
it is not revealed yet what he is like on this earth, and the poor you will have with you always. But he is a child of the king. He is in Christ Jesus. And that is a very glorious position that he has. It's a high position. The rich man, when he is tested, because everybody gets tested, he too is not to be distressed with his humiliation. Because a rich person usually has everything together, right? He's got the wherewithal. They, they know how to operate in the world, and they've done pretty good. Well, when a trial hits them, it's shameful. Why am I suffering? I've got enough money. Yeah, well, money doesn't cut it when it comes to testing and suffering. It just doesn't. And so that rich man, when he is tried, is not to be distressed with his humiliation, but rather he should focus on eternal things because his wealth and he himself will pass away. But the eternal things are forever. So that's what that little passage is talking about. I didn't spend a lot of time on it uh, last time we were together. Now I'd like to continue on to the contrast James made between being tested and how it differs from temptation, because I think people get that confused. We'll look at two points in verses 12 through 15. First, the outcome of enduring the testing, being approved by it, okay, you pass through it. And then secondly, the source of temptation and finding out that it's not from God. Temptation is not from God, testing is. And how does that all fit together? So let's just look at these verses by reading them first, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial or testings. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for James' writing and just how black and white it is, how clearly he articulates the truth of eternal values and the truth that all of us will experience trials and tribulations down here. But we look to a day when those will all pass away. Father, when we will be free from any temptation to evil and we won't have any more testings of our faith because we will see Jesus as he is. We look forward to that day when our faith will become sight. Help us now to live with a faith that endures and goes on and is not daunted by the testing or the trials that we face. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the outcome of endurance, you see in verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which, is, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James so far established the fact that believers will experience testing of their faith. It's, it's a given. And he has also exhorted us to pray during that time so that we have the proper attitude when we face these kind of things. Praying means that you have an attitude of dependence. I mean, just for starters, you're praying to someone you cannot see. So you're exercising faith in believing and you're depending upon him when you turn to him and ask for help. And that dependence on God is good by using the example of the poor man and the rich man and just how transitory this life on earth is and how quick it goes. We're promised 80 years, folks. 80 years. Let's see, 80 years, eternity. Hmm. That's fast. That's very fast. And that's what James is trying to get across, like withering grass and fading flowers. But to the person of faith, 
to the one that has genuine faith, faith that endures these testings and comes out the other side approved, James gives a solid encouragement that they'll be recipients of at least two gifts. Number one, they will be blessed, and number two, they'll receive a crown of life. Okay? So blessing. This word is often translated happy. You'll be happy. You'll be happy. In the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. It's the same thing, blessed, same word. And the word can be translated like happy. You can put that in there. The nuance is deeper, though, than what we usually consider happiness to be. Happiness is kind of frivolous in our thinking today. It doesn't mean giddy, momentary, fleeting emotion that we feel when something good happens. That meaning of the word is not in the Beatitudes. That's not contained in this word, blessed is he. Okay? The meaning of this word in the Beatitudes as well is a deeper meaning than that. This blessedness is experienced by those who enjoy a genuine, meaningful relationship with God who is blessed. Our blessings come from the blessed one. It's deeper than just happiness. So blessedness is a characteristic of the very nature of God and can be ours only as we share in the nature of God, which we do if we have trusted Jesus Christ for our salvation. Blessedness in this understanding is perfect contentedness and a deep-seated life joy which is undisturbed by assailing forces of adversity and outward circumstances of this life. You've witnessed it in believers, older believers, that got the word they have cancer. Yes, they're saddened by the fact that they might be leaving this world sooner than they maybe wanted to. They have family left. But they're not completely devastated. They haven't disintegrated. They're not contemplating suicide because they respond in a proper way with the right attitude. The testing that came into their life through physical illness is being responded in the right way. And so that they are blessed then. They have that deep sense of security. Why? Because they're eternal. This life isn't all that there is. They recognize that there's more coming. It is the gracious and saving effect of God's favor on us, but enjoyed only when there is a corresponding behavior towards God so that it forms the hoped-for good of those who in this life are subject to oppression and testing and trials. Trials are good. There I said it. Suffering is good. There I said it. We don't invite it, but it comes. And it's good for us. Those of you that are younger, it's good for you to bear the yoke in your youth, the Scriptures teach us. Why? Because it trains you up. It makes you strong. Because life is hard. And as I always say, then you die. It really is. Life is difficult. (laughs) Never forget training up young ones that are going to work for the first time. They work four hours, three days a week. Oh, man. Oh, Oh. Oh. I don't know if I can do this. That's the way they respond, right? Anybody had a teenager and you get them working and they do that. And then they finally go to, you know, five days a week, half days still. Then pretty soon they're doing 40-hour weeks. And they're still really tired. Well, you know what you tell them every time. Hey, welcome to life. This is the way it is. So don't respond so negatively. Take it in stride and keep on living, keep on growing. So this happiness refers to the spiritually prosperous state of the person who is a recipient of sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They're enabled to minister these blessings to their own souls by yielding to him so that the ministry is cooperating with him, even in the trial. You know, Mary and I used to talk about trials 
and we'd say, you know, after you come through it, you're approved, right? You made it through. That was a tough one, you know. It's not something that we would pay one nickel for, but we wouldn't trade it for a million dollars. We wouldn't want to go through it again, but we are so blessed that we went through that because we learned many things about ourselves and our weaknesses and the strength of God to meet us there. So don't be afraid of trials and testings. This is the blessedness pronounced in everyone that perseveres under trial. Perseveres means to stay put because what can you do when you face a trial? What's some options that you have? Hello? Run. Run, 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 run. That's why God boxed in Israel at the Red Sea. It was a boxed canyon. The sea was before him, and Pharaoh's army was coming in the back of him. They had no options. They couldn't go anywhere. God wanted to show them something, his power and his strength. And they, they, they whined, didn't they? But Moses led them, and they responded. And when they got to the other side, do you think they were grateful? Do you think they were blessed? Of course they were. Of course they were. So to be able to abide, to stay, to remain. Consider how the word is used in these verses. In Matthew 10, 22, you can just jot these down. The one who has abided under the prolonged hatred of all because of Jesus, because of his name, will be saved. That's future. Will be saved. In Matthew 24, 13, the one who abides under love that has grown cold at the very end of the age it's talking about, will be saved. You see how this eternal perspective comes in. And in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we abide under the sufferings and the trials, we will reign with him. Future, all future. Talking about something that's going to happen if we persevere. James 5.11 if we abide under, as Job abided under his trials and circumstances, we will be blessed because the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. Again, that's future. You don't know it when you're going through it. But if you go through it enough, you begin to see a pattern. And the older you get and the more experience you have, it's not that you look for the trials. It's not that you try to bring them on yourself. But about halfway through them, you go, oh, yeah, this is familiar. And your soul gets quieted, and you just wait for the passing of it. First Peter 2.20, if when we suffer for doing what is right and patiently abide under the suffering, this is what finds favor or grace with God. And one last thought on the word perseveres, okay, is that the tense of the word portrays this person as characteristically enduring the various trials. It's in present tense. It's not something one-off. This is a habit of this person's life. Refusing to get out from under them or give up. Such perseverance is a true sign of genuine faith. That marks that when you come through that, you go, oh, it's just assuring to you that you are truly born again. Because the endurance discovered by this person is clearly a gift from God. Because they know they would have buckled if it was up to them. They understand something supernatural took place that enabled them to persevere. Only the true believer would ever come through such a thing like that. That's the first gift. The second gift is to those who endure is the crown of life. For once... He has been approved, after this is all over, he will, future tense, receive the crown of life. Now, to be approved, dokimas, means you stood the test and made it through. That's pretty simple, right? In the New Testament times, they would dokimas, a coin, to determine whether it was a genuine coin or not. You've seen in old movies where they take a sovereign and they bite on it, right, to make sure that it's solid and it's... It's a real thing. It's really gold. So in order for believers to experience the blessedness we discovered above, he must not only have been tested, but also been attested or approved, having shown himself genuine. The testing has 
adequately demonstrated that this character is firm and reliable. And with each new test they experience, it will only serve to strengthen. That's why older saints are quiet, patient, joyful, no matter what befalls them, because they've got a lifetime of experiencing these things and have seen God give them the patience to endure and to persevere through it. They have genuine faith. Now, this crown of life, there are a lot of crowns, okay? There's a crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8, for those who love his appearing. There's a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4, given when uh, the, chief, uh, the chief shepherd appears. And there's a crown of life here and also in Revelation 2.10. And it's given for endurance. But what is a crown of life? Is it a crown? (laughs) What are we talking about here? Well, a lot of people compare this crown of life and compare it with the Greek games where a wreath was presented to the winner of the games. You've probably heard this explained. And the word means that which surrounds, so it's like a wreath in the games. But we need to consider some situations here that are specific to this context. Who's writing this? Who's writing this epistle? James. And when is he writing it? Early or later in the church age? Early, very early, maybe the first epistle ever written. And who's he writing to? Louder? I heard it. Jewish believers, okay? You find that in the first couple verses. So James, with a strong Jewish background and writing predominantly to recently saved Jews, would probably not have the mindset of the Greek games in his thinking. Orthodox Jewish people abhorred those games. They seem to point away from that interpretation of James' use of the crown here. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uses the word Stephanos, crown, that's my name, okay, crown, to symbolize special honor and happiness and prosperity in the Old Testament. They didn't have the Greek flavor, but they used that Greek word Stephanos when it was translated from the Hebrew into Greek, Stephanos. Psalm 21.3 says, Blessings of good things, which means a crown of fine gold. And in Proverbs 12.4, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. So you're not thinking the Greek games and the little wreath here. It's not an individual reward. There are those. This is not one of those. Paul even uses it to represent such in Philippians 4.1, if you want to take down these references, and 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And this is also the meaning in Revelation 4.4 4 and verse 10. Why is it important to make this distinction? Well, because... The crown spoken of here is not to be thought of as an individual reward, as you might see at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 3 and following. It's a reward for what is done as a believer throughout his or her life. The crown mentioned in James is a crown of life with all the other crowns mentioned above. It refers to eternal life. That's what it's talking about. That's what it's talking about. It's not a reward for something any human being can do. That's not what James is speaking about here. It kind of fits nicely with that um, genuine faith and that assurance. This is, you are assured of your eternal life. What James is saying is simple. Anyone who endures, and only those with genuine faith will endure in the way that James has defined endurance here, or perseverance, they can be assured that they are inheritors of eternal life, not based on their endurance, but based on God's free gift of eternal life to all who believe. And because all who believe will be able to evidence that genuine faith through their endurance when their faith is tested, that crown of life is theirs because they have endured. Did I make sense or does it sound like I'm double talking here? Is it making sense? Go like this. Okay, I want to make sure you're still with me. Good, thanks. I'm, I'm not ready to call you up and do jumping jacks yet, but it's been a rough week. To those who love him, 
Now, the love of God is not present in the heart of one who does not believe in him. In fact, he's the enemy of God. Did you know that? Unbelievers are at enmity with the God of creation. It says so in Romans. And in Ephesians, it says that they live having no hope and without God in the world. What a predicament. That's those that have not yet believed in the gospel. But those who do have a personal relationship with God through faith and whose faith is genuine, they will display their love to God. 1 John 5, 3, keeping his commandments, being obedient shows love for God. John 14, 23, if anybody loves the Lord, he will keep his words. If you love me, keep my commandments. Let me read this quote to you. It's, it, it's instructive. It's helpful. It's written uh, or taken from a book called The Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character. The Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character. It's a, it's a humdinger. Um, it's very convicting. And it really helps you to identify who are believers and who aren't. Many profess, but some are not true believers And there are distinguishing characteristics of a true believer. This is what this book has to say about that. Quote, there is a vast difference between such an affection and that selfish and unhallowed friendship to God which terminates on our own happiness as its supreme motive and end. Talking about love for God. True believers love God. Those that do not know know God through Jesus Christ yet don't have that kind of love. It's more of a a selfish type of love. If a man in his supposed love to God has no ultimate regard except for his own happiness, if he delights in God not for what he is, God is, but for what he is, God is to him, in such a sentiment there is no moral virtue. So if somebody gets saved because The person giving them the gospel gave them a wrong kind of gospel by saying, if you just believe Jesus Christ, he can put your marriage back together. That's not the gospel. And God may not put the marriage back together. In fact, I know of at least a couple marriages that broke up because of the gospel because the man believed and the woman would have nothing to do with it and she divorced him. There is indeed a great love of self but no true love of God. But where the enmity of the carnal mind is slain, the soul is reconciled to the divine character as it is. God himself, in the fullness of his manifested glory, becomes the object of devout and delighted contemplation. God-centeredness. God, God, not me. Not what I can get out of this transaction. Oh, Lord, that's why, you know, Oh, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I'll do anything. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a sinner's prayer. They just want to get out of whatever they're into. In his more favored hours, the views of a good man are in a great measure diverted from himself as his thoughts glance toward the varied excellences of deity. He scarcely stops to inquire whether the being whose character fills his mind and in comparison of whose dignity and beauty all things are atoms and vanity will extend his mercy to him. He doesn't think of God as being merciful on him. He just wants to be happy. He wants to have peace. His soul cleaves to God and in the warmth of fervor of devout affection he can often say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire beside thee. As the heart pants after the water brooks, so pants my soul after thee, O God. That is a believer. Whom have I on earth but thee? That's a believer. You see, if you're looking for personal benefits from coming to church, that does not mean you're a believer. In fact, I would question where your heart really is. You see, when you, when you truly believe, now I'm talking to unbelievers here or people that haven't believed yet, when you truly believe, you give everything up. You come to the end of yourself and all your schemes to be happy, 
to have a good life, to make sure your kids have a good life. Whatever bargain you're cutting with God in order to get something from him has nothing at all to do with the gospel. The gospel basically says that you are sinful, been born in sin, therefore you are separate from your creator. And if you remain in that situation, being separate from your creator, you will die separate from your creator and experience eternal separation from God forever and ever in hell. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son who died for us that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. But in order to truly believe in him, you have to back out of the way and say, I am a sinner and I have nothing to offer. I want to receive from you the freedom that you provide for me in Jesus Christ. Please save me. Have mercy on me, God. That's the gospel. It's very simple, and it's very different from what many people in evangelical churches believe. It really is. Now, the source. The source and process of temptation. We're talking about enduring testing. Now we're going to move into how testing can become temptation. Okay, In James 13 uh, through 15 following here. Let no one say, when he's tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And you say, Lynette, you just got done saying that God sends the tests to strengthen our faith, and that if we're genuine, we'll endure those tests. And how can you say now that don't let anybody say that when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God? You just said. Well, that's what I want to explain to you to help you to understand. The way in which you proceed from trials to temptation shows that the former may turn into the latter. (laughs) The testing, the trial, can turn into temptation to evil. And you have this in mind when you deal with things, and this is what James was talking about, temptation when it comes, when the ladder comes out to the fore. What am I talking about? Well, in James 2, uh, 1, 2 through 12, James dealt with the concept of trials. Just keep that mind in your mind, trials. You see it especially in verse 2, and then it's accompanied by approval, and you see that in verse 3 and verse 12. And now he moves into the area of temptation, which is the inner solicitation or the invitation to do evil. That's not of God. That is not of God. And with it comes sin. In the first section, James taught that trials or testing of faith are from God, and for our good, with the anticipated outcome, are standing firm and passing a test and and being approved so that we are blessed and happy and so that we receive the crown of life. We That's getting through the testing. But in this next section, James shows that in every test, there is the inherent potential for temptation. So be careful. What determines whether the test results in being approved or devolves into temptation and sin is the believer's inner response. It's how you respond to the test. In verses 13 through 15, James prevents anyone from thinking his teaching on the testing of faith and using it as an escape from personal responsibility or an excuse for sin, because people will do that. Oh, God, God's doing this to me. You just said he tests. Yes, but he doesn't tempt to do evil. The propensity in the heart to, for man to blame shift and make excuses for sin is seen everywhere in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 3, 12 through 13, both Adam and Eve blame shifted. Adam said, the woman that you gave me caused me to sin. Eve pointed at the snake. Neither one of them was willing to take personal responsibility for their sin. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, Brad uh, 
Boozer shared with us, King Saul, blame shifted to the people. He was told to go in and, and kill all the people, all the livestock, everything, and the king, Agag. He spared the king. He spared the best livestock. And when the prophet came and said, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? He says, oh, the people. The people. He blame shifted to the people. He was a people pleaser. He lost his kingdom because of that. Revelation 16, 21 shows us earth dwellers. I take to be unbelievers during the time of the tribulation. And big hailstones are falling on them and they're hiding in the rocks and shaking their fist at God for sending the curses. They know where they're coming from and they blame God. Do you think they'd humble themselves and say, oh, please have mercy on us? No, they're cursing God. When I was going through this, I was reminded of a poem. Listen to this. I don't often do this, but I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my husband's eyes. He laid me on the downy couch to see what he could find. And here is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. And that is, at three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally, I poison all my lovers." But I'm happy now that I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything that I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. That is the mantra of today's culture, beloved. It truly, truly is. Nobody takes personal responsibility for their behavior. I know that's strong. Most people don't take personal responsibility for their behavior. James preemptively takes away the possibility of his readers blaming God as a source of temptation and explains the true source of temptation. It's not God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is an imperative again. It's a command. Don't you dare say God is tempting you to do evil. And James gives a basis for the admonition and declaring the nature of God to his leader. Because God cannot be tempted by evil. The word translated into English as cannot be tempted is, is only used here in the Bible. It's the only place it's used, just once. It literally means untemptable, without capacity to be tempted. That would be God. The Bible clearly teaches that God is holy and that he is without sin. Isaiah 6.3 shows us God declared by the seraphim to be holy, holy, holy. In Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Hebrews 7.26, the Lord is described as holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And in 1 Peter 2.21-24, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You see, God and evil exist in two distinct realms that never meet. Do you hear me? This is, this is lifting your view of God, folks. God and evil exist in two distinct realms that never meet. He has no vulnerability to evil and is utterly impregnable to onslaught of evil. He is aware of evil, but untouched by it. He's like a sunbeam shining on a trash heap that is untouched by the trash. Thank you, Johnny Mac. He thought about that. Thought about that. What a view of God. And we can have a personal relationship with that God through Jesus Christ. One untouched by evil. 
(laughs) compared to us who sin on a daily basis. So let no one say, don't let anyone say, God cannot be tempted by evil. The difficulty some have with the temptation of Jesus, who is God, in Matthew 4.1, can easily be cleared up when the difference between testing and temptation is understood. Although from the devil's perspective, he was tempting Jesus to do evil, Jesus and the whole experience that he had, having been led into the wilderness by who? Or whom? The Holy Spirit. Okay? So you know something's going on here. He proved to be a test which he withstood and passed, standing approved in the end as sinless. Our Adam. Our Adam who passed the test. The first Adam did not. Jesus did. He says, James does, he himself does not tempt anyone. God may allow and does allow us to face trials and the testing of our faith so that we will be assured of our genuine faith when we become approved of it, when we endure it. But it's our own inner response turned negative which takes that testing then and turns it into temptation to do evil. It's not God, it's us. It's us that takes testing and turns it to temptation. Testing is directed to approve, but temptation is inducement to sin. So God allows the trials in which temptation to sin can occur, not to solicit believers to sin, but to move them to greater endurance. It's a sanctifying thing. It's a good thing to face these trials. And that's God's perspective. He wants us to succeed. But each one is tempted. Now he gets down to the nitty-gritty. Every human being, each one of us, there are no exceptions, and the temptation is seen as being an ongoing possibility because the verb is in the present tense, and it means that a state of continuing, repeated, and ongoing situations. So what is the source of temptation? We're all tempted. We can all be tempted. It's when you're carried away and enticed. What does that mean? Well, both terms explain the same process. Carried away and enticed. And it's really, it's really a great word. It's used to describe how bait was laid out for an animal to be caught, and the lure was so intense as to literally drag out the beast from the protective covering of a brush or a cave. Another one that our fishing friends might understand is fisherman's bait, used to lure the fish away from the rest and onto the hook. The important thing to remember when considering both terms is a thing that they have in common, and that's the inherent element of their allurement. They had to make the hunted focus on only the attractiveness of the bait. Fishermen know that. They'll try with one bait for a while. They're not biting. They try a different bait because the allurement factor wasn't there for whatever reason. The sun's not hitting it. It's not the right time of day. Water's too warm. I don't know. A whole bunch of reasons. You can ask Trevor or my brother Mark. When we're tempted to evil, we reason within ourselves only about the advantages, listen to me, only about the advantages of giving in to the temptation. We do mental gymnastics. We work at it so that we can do evil. Are we corrupt or What? See, that's the sin that remains in us. That's why we need to be glorified. That's why we need different bodies. Because contained in this mortality is remaining sin. And we focus on the advantages of giving in to the temptation. We see only the supposed enjoyment of the desired object and none of the ruin if the sin is committed. Second Peter 2, 12. Enticing unstable souls. The false teacher lures weak ones away from the truth and into air. They lure them. Proverbs 7, 6 through 23 gives a picture of a seductive woman and the method that she uses to what? Persuade and entice the young man into sin. And how does it work? Well, it's by 
our own lust, by our own lust. Here's the real culprit. Here's the real source of temptation. It's our own lust. Not the testing allowed by God, not even someone else, but it's our own lust deep from within us that latches onto the allurement. That's when testing becomes temptation to do evil. Temptation has its source not in the external lure, but through the inner lust. And this is a, the wrong inner response to testing of our faith. This is where testing turns to temptation. What is this lust that we're talking about? Well, the word used simply means a deep, strong desire or longing of any kind. And it, it doesn't have to be negative. Lust can be used in a good sense as well, actually. We very seldom talk about it like that. It's the context that fills out the meaning. And this is part within each of us. We have this within each of us, this lusting. Some refer to it as unredeemed flesh. Some call it the sin nature. Some call it the enemy within. I like the sin that remains. It's kind of a homardiological hangover. We have sin that remains. And even though we're saved and we will see Jesus someday, we battle with sin. Romans chapter 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do I don't do? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what that lust is. But whatever name that you give it, it is existing within each person, believer and non-believers. There are numerous passages which describe it. I said Romans 7, 18 through 25, especially 21. I find then a principle, a principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. There's a battle. That battle that you face is affirmation of a faith that you have that is genuine. Because if you didn't have a battle with the sin that you're being tempted to do, you probably are not a believer. Unbelievers do not battle with sin. They look for new ways to do it all the time because they enjoy it. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. The sin that's within is behind the taking of the good things in this life and corrupting them. Our need for food turns into gluttony. Our need for money into greediness and materialism. Our need for companionship into immorality. And our need for rest into laziness and inactivity. <laughs> Everything that's good we corrupt because of sin. Now notice one more thing about James 1.14. It says, each one and his own lust. This means that there are, there are person-specific lusts in each person. Oh, man. I could preach like for months just on that. Do you realize that you have specific lusts that are different than mine? Beware. Do you know what they are? That's a good start. If you've got the guts, journal and when you sin and you gave in and then you finally humbled yourself and confessed your sin, identify what that lust was. What was it that led you to that? What was the allurement that you took the test that could have been marvelous for you and victorious for you and you turned it into a temptation and then you fell to it and sinned? Identify them. What may be severely tempting for one person may be nothing to another. Therefore, it's not so much a type of lust that place all of us in the same camp, but rather the fact that we all have that principle within us and we need to guard against it. Nevertheless, each one of us is personally responsible to deal with them biblically and not blame God for the temptation. You see why it's not God that does and brings the temptation. Now here's the steps to temptation, I'll wrap up with this. The steps of temptation that end in death. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, having been fully formed, it brings forth death. Right from the beginning of verse 15, we see that there's a process in the mind of James. He says, then, then, 
Something's taking place. And the word then points to a sequence of events. And the preceding verse gave us the initial process. When he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, then something happens. When lust has conceived, the temptation itself is not sin. Do you hear me? You still have time. (laughs) You still have time. Okay? Whatever it is that's luring you, you can turn away from it. I think of uh, Titus 2.11, I think it is, 2.11 or 12. It says, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, right? The grace of God has appeared so that we can say no to sin. Well, when that temptation is coming, you can say no to it. Before you're a believer, you have no power. You are powerless to say no to the sin. And so you're sinning all the time. The temptation is not itself sin. Even the initial sense of being drawn toward the desired object, thought, or action, that's not sin either. But when it is indulged in, when the urge is surrendered to and then cultivated, when the will agrees with the craving, then an unholy union has formed between the illicit desire and the surrendered will. Sin. Sin. Conceived is an interesting word borrowed from the process of childbirth, right? Made up of two words, together and to take. So the understanding of the term is that to clasp together or to embrace in the pictures of coming together two people and the result is conception. Conception, something comes forth from that. One commentator put it this way, when the will consents to the illicit union, the lustful feelings become impregnated with sin. Far more eloquent than I, so I quoted him. (laughs) Really nice. When the will consents to the illicit union, the temptation, the lustful feelings become impregnated with sin. It gives birth to sin. And when there's conception, unless interrupted, birth follows naturally. You see how this flow goes? The word picture James paints tracing the steps of temptation show the conception of lust to culminate in the birth of sin. But that's not all. When sin is accomplished, the process continues on and the sin which is now birthed (coughs) grows and develops into maturity. And the term accomplished literally means to come to completion, to be fully grown. And so the word connotates a, a completeness of, of parts and, and function and accompanying a full growth. It brings forth death. This is serious stuff. This is not playing around. This is not just the feel-good sermon, be happy, be warm, be filled, see you next week. Sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross. Sin is what brought the entire world under the curse of God. Sin. Think about it. It brings forth death. Now, in the most literal sense, death means separation in the Bible. Wherever you see the word death, you can always just substitute it with separate. It means separation. There's physical death where the soul is separated from the physical body. That's physical death. Spiritual death is when the soul is separate from God, the source of spiritual life. Spiritual death. So you got physical death, you got spiritual death. And then there's one other type of death talked about in Revelation, eternal death. Eternal death, that's where the soul that is separate from God dies physically and is separate from life, you know, physical life, but it's also separated from God, spiritual death, and that goes on for eternity then. That's eternal death. At this point, it's important to clarify what type of death James may be talking about, what, what type of death. As his audience is comprised of believers, his teaching on temptation must relate to them in some way. We understand that believer can never be separated from Christ in any way. See Romans 8, 
the latter part of Romans 8, what separates us from Christ? Nothing. Nothing, and he lists a whole bunch of things that cannot separate us. So it cannot be either spiritual or eternal death, which is spoken of in this verse. It has to be physical death. Are you kidding me? How come I'm not dead? How come I'm not dead? It refers to physical death. Maybe as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 11.30, where he teaches that, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, a euphemism for physical death. He was talking to the Corinthians that were partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, and it resulted in death. See also John 5.16, where it's clear a believer can commit a sin that leads to death. Can't be spiritual death. If you're a believer, you're a believer. The deal is sealed. Okay? You're in Christ for eternity. So it's got to be talking about spiritual death. Now, this is for the one who doesn't have genuine saving faith. I'm talking now to one who's not yet believed. You're still weighing these things out, thinking about them, questioning, am I a believer? This is for you. This verse can also be instructive to the one who has not yet believed. To that person, their present state is a state of spiritual death. You are living separated from your creator God, the source of spiritual life. You're born like that. It's called original sin. You're separate from God. To that person, this present state is a state of spiritual death. And according to Ephesians 2.1, you are dead men walking, dead women walking. Okay, dead teen walking. You don't have a relationship with God, so you are spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. And if you remain in that state and you die physically, whether old or young, you will then experience eternal death because you're taking your spiritual death, dying physical, physical death, into eternity, and you're eternally separated from God. Now, for the believer who James was writing to, how does this play out? Well, temptation and sin are nothing to play around with. They come with dire consequences Every willful sin gives a mortal wound to the soul and puts it at a greater distance from God and goodness. A greater distance from God, separation. A greater distance from God and goodness, but not eternal separation. You're a believer. And we can never hope to have our hearts purified from corrupt affections unless we cleanse our hands from vicious actions. Vicious actions, sin, doing sin. There's a lot of sin that goes on in the heart. And come to church on Sunday, we smile, we put on nice clothes, we all look good and everything, everybody's happy. But you know, inwardly, you're cultivating some sin. That will keep you further and further and further from God. You will sense a distance, even from your brothers and sisters in Christ, from your own spouse. You will sense a distance taking place. Separation, separation, right? Sin is awful. It crucified Christ on the cross. So the only remedy that you have, believer, if you're cultivating a sin, is to fall on your face and ask God to forgive you and have mercy on you and give you deliverance from that. If you have a trusted friend, entrust him with the knowledge or her with the knowledge of your sin and ask for prayer and ask for accountability. You don't want to be getting further and further and further away from the one that you love. And can you imagine looking into his face if he were to come back? He'd be like Peter, right? He'd be like Peter who wept bitterly because he knew what he had done. Sin's serious. It's so serious. And it says right here in James that if you're not careful, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when that lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin has matured, it brings forth death. I hate to end on a tough note like that, but take it, and I know you can. You're strong. And if you have any questions, come and see me afterward. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the sternness of James' words. Uh, there's, There's encouragement 
in his epistle as well, but there's also warning because he loved those that he was writing to and he wanted them to prosper spiritually. He wanted them to indulge themselves in the blessedness of the new life in Christ that they had and not to be dragged down by sin and not to allow sin to separate them from those that they loved, but more importantly, from you, growing more and more distant from the one that gave his very life for us. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for this word today. In Jesus' name, amen.